Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another interesting guest. We have with us Dr. Hamish Graham. And one of the reasons I really wanted to bring um, Hamish on was his LinkedIn profile piques my curiosity. The first thing I read was digital health entrepreneur. But then there was a statement that said, from the wards of Warwick to boardrooms of Manchester to clinics in Somaliland and Singapore. And I thought, what on earth? What a crazy career Hamish has done. Let's get him onto the podcast. Massive pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you? Welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be with you guys. Um, Amazing. So you've done a lot of weird and wonderful things that we really want to get into the thick of. Uh, but as is, you know, the nature of the, the podcast, we want to strip it all the way back to the very beginning, a young Hamish, you know, who's embarking on this journey of becoming a doctor, studying medicine, um, Tell us a bit more about that, the motivations, why you wanted to go on this journey. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's taking me a little way back. <laughs> uh, I, I started out really clear that I wanted to do medicine and mm -hmm. I didn't know why. <laughs> and I had some terrible careers advice at school. Uh, and they basically said, why do you want to do medicine? And I, I don't know. <laughs> and they said, so are you doing this to please someone? Who do you know? that wants you to do medicine. Nobody wants me to do medicine. Like I haven't talked to anyone about it. Do you know someone who does it? Yeah, my dad. Okay. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're doing it to please your dad. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm a teenager and I don't like my dad. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And so I sat in the careers room and I started going through different jobs. And I went and did work experience as an accountant. Oh, And then I decided that I wanted to be an actuary. And I didn't mm -hmm. get very much further through I was a uh, naval architect was the next one that came up and I went off to uni to do aerospace engineering. Honestly, I really didn't get out of the AA section and <laughs> I was there for about two weeks before I realized I'd just made a complete disaster. I taught myself physics. I'd done a whole load of stuff to get into engineering after mm. starting A levels. And I, I wasn't with my tribe. Mm. I wasn't with the people mm. that I wanted to spend the next five years with doing, solving the problems that you want to solve, which are about people and like making an impact on people and mm. seeing the results of what you do with people. Um, and so I had to pivot. And uh, yeah, thankfully, Sheffield uh, accepted me onto the medical school, uh, managed to pivot there and... Um, yeah, I've loved being a doctor ever since. Mm. You mentioned that you didn't feel you found your tribe, your people. And I'm conscious that many people are probably feeling the same. How was that feeling? What kind of were the points that kind of was the cough, you know, the nail in the coffin that made you kind of pivot? Tell us a bit more about that. It's really clear, but um, there's only so much I can share on somebody's podcast. Of course. Yeah. Because half mm -hmm. of it took place in the student union crying into a pint with oh, my wow. hallmates okay. just going mm. what have i done like you know i thought uni was supposed to be this this amazing experience where you mm -hmm. find friends for life and you're going to have a big party and mm. i was two weeks in i was looking around the room at some of the cleverest people i'd ever met and they were doing a level maths questions like further maths questions in 10 minutes 
Oh, wow. I was going home and working on these things for like 90 minutes and going, <laughs> where's the where's the formula sheet? Wait a minute, that's not even helping. I don't know where to go in the formula sheet. Like, which one am I going to use? And these guys have done everything, mm. like in the lunch break before the next session started. And and they loved it. They, 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 they spoke it like a language and they absolutely loved what they were doing. And I wasn't loving it. Mm. but I did love being at university I see mm. um, I was passionate about sports I loved hockey and you know I could see great opportunities being at university if I was doing medicine and I, I was mm. looking over everyone's shoulders doing their homework copying their notes it looked so great like it's what I wanted to learn Fair. Mm. and then you got into Sheffield how was it then studying medicine? Did you feel you then found your tribe? You felt more at home, let's say. Yeah, totally. Like, um, and it wasn't that I was bad at the engineering thing. I got an A for the only assignment I had to hand in. So I was, I was always <laughs> proud of that. And it came back useful about 20 years later. But uh, yeah, like I got onto medicine and I just loved learning what we were learning about. And yeah, in the first couple of years, there's not much clinical contact. I loved going out and doing our case study with a pregnant person and and, and going into some of the socioeconomically challenged areas in Sheffield, mm-hmm. and going on placement with social services and just seeing what it takes to, to look after vulnerable children and, and try and keep them safe and how much opportunity there was to to resource that better and 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 do more for for the most vulnerable um and it, that was just a no-brainer for me like i could be in a room <laughs> with some formulas thinking about how to build the next skyscraper or the next oil rig mm. which is a great problem to solve it's an interesting problem or you can be there going how do i deal with providing safety and security for this child when their mum might have the and it, reading age of a of a primary school child and is leaving them in a really vulnerable situation on their own thinking that the, the pets in the home are providing protection in the mm. same way that a little child might think that mm. pets keep other kids safe mm. uh that's really tough. It's a great problem to solve. How do you keep families like that safe and help mum and child yeah. get the best out of life? Absolutely. Um, and now walk us, walk us through your medical schooling years and your first days as a doctor, what it felt like being on the wards, what it felt like treating people. Walk us through all the emotions and the journey that led up to that day. Oh, I don't know what it was like for you guys, but... Uh... First day on the wards, mm. like I'd worn a suit for interviews. I'd worn a suit mm-hmm. for like weddings and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But you you get ready in the morning, like, and you're like, oh, is this smart enough? And right, you've got your tie on and you can barely breathe because you know you put on a couple of uni freshers week pounds, <laughs> and uh, you, you you're in there on that surgical ward round at seven o'clock in the morning and you haven't been awake at seven in the morning for months a long time 
yeah. <laughs> and it's dark and all the nurses are changing over and the car park's full and you don't know where you're going. You eventually find where you're going down this warren and you turn up there and you're immediately accosted for not having rolled your shirt sleeves up to get your elbows out. And then you're told <laughs> off for not having your wrist watch, oh, having your wrist watch on. And then you're told off for having a tie on and, and you've got to tuck it in. And you just learn the way around. But it's it's such a privilege. Like, And I was reminded of that in COVID you know, mm, when I, I got to go back to the wards and I hadn't been on the wards for a long time. And mm-hmm. uh, as a reminder of what a privilege it is to, to hang out with people who need help and, mm-hmm. and to be close to them when they're struggling. But yeah, so wards, uh, first day on the wards was, was scary. I used to love the clinical skills mm-hmm. team uh, and hiding out in that room, practicing clinical skills. Did a couple of years in Sheffield and then I went to Manchester to do healthcare ethics and law. Um, mm-hmm. I mentioned that I loved hockey. I was coaching Sheffield women's hockey team and uh, I went to Manchester. I had actually intended to go to, to Greenwich and do sports medicine okay. with an eye on the 2012 Olympics and being a sports doctor. But uh, a member of member of faculty had advised me that that wouldn't look great on your CV to go to <laughs> a former polytechnic and he would only sign off a, a red brick institution. So hmm. I think I, I took see. his advice uh, or firm guidance and yeah. ended up in Manchester <laughs> doing healthcare law and ethics. Yeah. I loved it because okay. it was with a load of non-medics and I never lived hmm. with medics and I, I always hung out with other people. Hmm. And Tell us about this kind of transition into kind of this this mini surgical career you had because I know you kind of got into a training program, kind of exploring that. Were you always passionate about surgery, or was it something that in your working career you started to kind of get an, an affinity towards? Yeah, I I liked the results. <laughs> I liked the results, and I liked the the different populations where you could have those results. So whether that was uh, uh, a frail older adult population with a fractured neck of femur mm-hmm. and you get them up and going and wow mm-hmm. that's you know a huge difference to 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 being immobilized in traction or uh whether that was younger people with you know uh, a significant morbidity if their fracture wasn't reduced and fixed properly in their hand arm leg whatever it was um so i really love that like that so it wasn't the surgery that i loved mm. it was being able to see the impact i made on people I see. um and i did think about medicine most of my <laughs> f1 mates at the time were, mm. wouldn't have said i'd ever be a surgeon um, yeah. they thought i was going to be care of the elderly physician oh, wow <laughs> you, you, you... Went on the opposite of the spectrum then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just, but I did look at the med reg at night and just went, I'm never going to be smart enough to do what you do and do as much as you guys do at mm-hmm. two o'clock in the morning. Like, <laughs> my brain doesn't work. It's just not very good at two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I, 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 
That's the most of us. That's definitely me. I'm out by 6, 7 p.m. Forget it, 2 o'clock. <laughs> at the end of the day, the evening on call, I'm out. Do you know what I mean? I'm always on the phone to Ams like, hey, I've got unreal patient. How do I deal with it? But kind of coming back to your story, um, so you're doing kind of this surgical training. You're kind of driven by the impact, kind of see the results of your work per se. Then things start to change for you, I think. You go and do this internship in a whole different world, um, something probably as far away from medicine as possible. Um, tell us what happened there. What was the change in mindset? Why did you want to go down this route when you were so happy in surgery? So uh, I'm going to come back a little bit because I'm was i never happy. All right, I'm never okay. happy. And I've learned <laughs> this. Like it, It's taken me 40 years to realize that I'm never going to be happy. And I, I mm. just did some kind of team building assessment thing. And the report came back and went, watch out. You're one of these people who's at risk of never being happy, even if something is 99% brilliant. <laughs> mm. like, oh God, why didn't someone tell me this 10 years ago? So <laughs> when I went off and did that ethics thing, the stuff that I love is like, what's the right thing to do? Okay. There's loads of stuff mm. that we can do, mm. but sometimes the right thing to do is to not do it. Mm. And, you know, um, I was around at the time that the liberal care pathway was introduced and then taken away um, and and the, the poor communication that went around the introduction of that. But what I saw from that was there was a really big unmet need to address how we looked after people approaching the end of life mm -hmm. and how we supported junior doctors at two o'clock in the morning to be able to do that. And um, maybe the execution wasn't great but it, it was a big unmet need and it was it was that was why it caught on mm. um and so i loved thinking about that sort of stuff so i finished my foundation training in sheffield uh went down to to london after a year out doing burns and trauma um in in sheffield and started core surgical training and all the way mm -hmm. through my career, I've met some really amazing guys. I, I just saw in the ATLS handbook that one of the guys that was in my class is now an author on the ATLS handbook. Oh, wow. I've been amazing. so lucky with the people I've met. Yeah. Um, in London, I spent some time at Guy's and St. Thomas's, and um, a, a brilliant woman called Hilary Cass put on mm. a couple of day leadership course for uh, junior doctors. And she attracted some, some really smart guys. Um, there and that group came together and went we don't want this to be a two-day course you can't do quality improvement and leadership in a two-day course and so mm. we we ended up putting together a program that ran all year getting a day to do quality improvement every month mm -hmm. and through this we were meeting the exec and seeing the opportunities to improve stuff and seeing the money that was being spent on massive mm. consultancies to come in and work out what was wrong with discharge letters at weekends. I can imagine those, going, those numbers being very big. <laughs> like, come and ask any of us. Why don't you ask us? But then from their perspective, we weren't accessible. Mm. It was more accessible to go to independent external consultants through procurement or who were coming into their board meetings than it was to, to send out a random email saying, hey, we want to have a conversation about why discharges as documents. Yeah. 
Um, mm. And I was really motivated by that. So I tried to uh, propose solutions to the deanery that would allow people to spend more time doing leadership and management. I'd come across the faculty of medical leadership and management, mm-hmm. um, which is a phenomenal organization. If you guys, you know, if you guys are looking to do things differently in your organizations, then tap into the FMLM. They're an amazing. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah. Dagny Rajasinghe was a great representative for, for their work where we were. Um, I was convinced when I couldn't do that, that I, I, I wanted to go and do an MBA. Oh, wow. So mm. I went back to Manchester to do a non-healthcare MBA to go and learn about like how the world outside the NHS solves the same problems that we have to solve. Yeah. Whether it's did, motivation, morale, whatever. Did you, so, so the question I want to ask here is, did you think you would have bigger impact by going down this MBA route, kind of the, the leadership approach than you as an individual surgeon? Or was it you saw a lot of problems that you thought you wanted to go and solve? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, no, I, I, I would say at the time where I was, I had been to Somaliland with mm-hmm. um, SET, uh, which was funded by by Department for International Development and a group from King's College London um, mm. to support uh, teaching and development in, in Africa. And I'd seen from a guy called Alexander Findlayson just the, the amazing impact a person could have when they took a good idea and made it real. And his work on setting up an online education platform and, and delivering online education. And you have to remember, this is like 2010, 11. Oh, more than a decade uh, ago. Yeah. And the internet existed. 2G existed. <laughs> 3G existed, but was not widespread in Somalia. And so to develop the kind of platform where you can share an image of an X-ray so someone can look at it on a computer in enough resolution to get the idea about what you're trying to teach them. And mm. you can have some kind of student tutor exchange. That's a huge piece of work. Mm. Forget all of the training that, that people put in to make sure that the people teaching from the UK could get their head around just how resource poor it was. So I saw that one clinician can have a huge impact. Yeah. A mm. team of clinicians can have a huge impact. Um, and so I went to do the MBA to sharpen my sword to, mm. you don't know what you don't know, go learn, go see what, what else is going on out there. And then I was going to bring it back. Mm. I wasn't going to be the teaching guy. I wasn't going to be the research guy. I was going to lead on leadership. I'd pick up the audit staff, quality improvement. I'd work with the board. I'd get the budget so that, mm cleverer people than me could do their PhDs and come up with new ways to help people. That's why I went. Um, mm. I wasn't going to, to this world of VC that I stumbled into. That was just a lucky, lucky approach from some, some awesome guys. Amazing. On this point of having sort of, you wear the lens of trying to improve systems, processes to see how we can do things better, right? It sort of correlates with the word, intrapreneur and it's a very interesting term that i first came across it from professor tony young at the nhs clinical entrepreneurship program now 
I'd love for you to break that down because a lot of people imagine entrepreneurship as founding, starting something, and it has to be from scratch and starting from zero. Talk to us a little bit about entrepreneurship, what it means, uh, what does it mean to you? And uh, just give us some examples. So I've got a question for you guys. All right. Mm. What's the difference between invention and innovation? That is a very good question. So I would say invention is gone. I would have thought invention starting from zero. Innovation is taking something that's there one to a hundred. So making it better. Um, I'm having a stab at it. I don't know, but inventing is doing something from scratch. Innovation is, um, working on something that exists already, making it better or using that for something else. I don't know if it's correct or not, but that's what it seems like to me. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Like instinctively, we, we know there's a difference, right? We feel that mm. there is a difference. If I said to you, invention is always useful, would you agree? Invention is always useful. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. No. We can all think of like crazy inventions, can't we? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, crazy bicycles with like little cabs on from the eighties or whatever. Um, yeah. if we think about innovation, we're generally drawn a bit more to the word innovation. Mm. There's something in that. So for me, innovation is invention with adoption. Okay. Mm. An invention in and of itself that no one uses could be the greatest invention of all time. But for whatever reason, maybe, it, maybe it's not feasible to scale it up. Maybe it's not cost effective. Maybe it's whatever the barrier is. Maybe it's a <laughs> solving a problem that's looking for a home. It's a problem that no one really has. Yeah. And there's plenty of that in the world. So innovation is invention that has adoption and for you to have adoption it has to be you know scalable it has to be feasible to do it has to be solving an unmet need that people feel um mm. and entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are generally looking to innovate and you'll get this incremental innovation where you say hey look here's our process in ED, people see people sit in reception for X many hours, then they get triaged. We're going to put a consultant on the front door to triage them. It's an incremental innovation, but actually it has some really significant impacts on outcomes and, and wait times and things mm. um, for the most sick. Mm. So there's nothing wrong with incremental innovation. I did a placement with the British cycling team. You know, those guys talked about the, the 1%, you know, Dave Brailsford. Uh, and you you add up a hundred of those one percent, and suddenly you're going faster <laughs> than everybody else in the world. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes, that's all we have capacity to do. Sometimes, if you think about your guys at work, like you can you can do one percent better. You can have a slightly better handover. That means there's less chaos in the night. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you do not need someone to turn up. And I had one with an app on your Windows smartphone circa 2009 
thinking that you were going to run your patient lists off your phone <laughs> and you were going to like change the world and nobody else could ever get into the chuffing list. And by the time you'd actually typed on the two buttons that you had on that phone, <laughs> like it was inventive, but it was not innovative. Mm. Mm. So entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are both doing that. The challenge is your, the types of stakeholders you have to manage and the interests. So when you do entrepreneurship, you're part of a bigger organization. That organization already has its strategy. It mm. already has short-term goals. It already has medium-term goals. If you go completely rogue and invent helicopters in a tank factory, <laughs> you're probably going to have to find a way to get spun out to be able <laughs> to grow that. Yeah. Whereas if you invent, you know, tracks and wheels, you're probably going to get better traction with your internal stakeholders because it's probably going to align closer to their strategy. Yeah. Now, if global warming means that we're all going to be underwater, then, hey, your helicopters might fly. But, <laughs> um, that, so it's about innovation and it's about the different challenges with managing stakeholders compared to entrepreneurship. Um, I think, yeah, that was a good spot question. And I think it makes you think, and I didn't really see the, the stakeholder side of things of managing those expectations, you know, it's very different from entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. Tell us if you have an example of you kind of doing something, you know, an incremental innovation or a change, um, that people may be able to relate to. Yeah. So, um, I'll reference one of my favorite ones from, from when I was at the Burns unit in Sheffield. Okay. And mm -hmm. I've told you, and I've worked with some amazing people. And so uh, a couple of my colleagues had done a whole load of research with, with mums to understand how their children had got scolded mm. and what first aid they'd done to the scold before they got to the hospital. And it turned out that, um, mums were putting toothpaste and garlic and turmeric and rubber bands oh, wow. and all kinds of other things on these burns. Um, I was blown away. Like I, I, I really, I couldn't like I, the variety of stuff that was going on these burns and the, the outcomes from it, it, it just didn't compute. Like I just, I, I couldn't imagine. So, um, how do you, how do you change it? How do you not write the paper that says, oh my gosh, aren't there a whole load of people out there who would be better off if they knew about burn first aid? Mm. So the bit that I did was go, right, what's the mnemonic that we would write? How would we make sure that people of whatever the eight most common languages in South Yorkshire are, all have access to this information? And so I worked with that group. They'd done all that research. I then started work on how we would communicate that in a poster, how we would make sure the poster could be used by people who can't read, how mm. you'd make sure it could be used by people in different languages, and then how we'd communicate it to get it adopted um, and scale up the learning. Because what you don't want is 50 other groups presenting at the next burn meeting going mm. 
yeah, no one in my city knows how to do first aid either. Yeah. It's terrible everywhere. Like, yeah. How many times do we have to prove that, that something needs to change? Like, yeah. No. I think that was a great example. And it made me think of the question, why did it feel so natural for you to go and do something about it? while your colleagues were exposed to it day in, day out. What made you different to go and do this? Uh, it's a great question. Why? An overdeveloped sense of justice. Too many fairy stories when I was a kid making me think that the world was full of happy endings. <laughs> I don't know. I get that. Like, like the the world's probably not a very fair place and um, I, I am very grateful to all of the taxpayers who slogged their guts out to invest in medical schools and universities that have given me the opportunity to to have a very different life to mm. to so many people mm. like and do you feel that you have a sense of responsibility, especially when a good chunk of a career was in a kind of humanitarian, caring profession. And now that you work or have experience in the VC consulting world, do you think it was flipped the other way around, you'd be inclined to do it? Such a good question. And, um, and I, I will always think about what, what, the best use of my time is um and i think about it a lot mm. i think that what works well for me is 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 being a doctor and what i mean by that is the thinking skills you get by going through the process of learning for five years at med school that ability to critically appraise information whether you get that information from bbc news or mail on sunday uh you know being able to critically appraise that but then the experience you get by working with all segments of society often at a time when they're feeling very vulnerable and are having some pretty challenging reactions to the pretty challenging situation in their life you know people get very angry they get upset they get frustrated particularly um, when they're worried about relatives and things like that so you then come away from the, the, those two experiences with this incredible resource that you can then draw on in other aspects. So for me, mm. public health is marketing. They're basically the same thing. Public yeah. health is trying to understand the world around you, to group and identify patterns in those groups, and then to seek to identify early signals of change, to change behaviors where you can at really far arm's length with really micro investments on a per person basis if you think about i don't know if you guys pay-per-click ads on websites and stuff like that micro investments in impressions mm. yeah add up to giant businesses True. giant impacts um and i think doctors underestimate just how much they have learned how much they bring they just have to work out 
where they get their energy from, where they get their joy from, and where mm. they want to deploy that. And it's not always in work. For me, I think I'd struggle if I wasn't getting it in the work bit of my day. Mm. If it was all about charitable work in the evenings or voluntary stuff or being the parent school governor or whatever. Like. Mm. Hamish, so um, question for you now. So you've clearly got a, a knack for identifying problems, strategizing ways, getting on board the stakeholders and bringing out solutions. For the guys who have that itch too, and they have too also I identified problems, what are some of the first steps anyone can take once they say, aha, this is a problem? What's their next steps practically? This is this is a great question. And um, there's a huge amount out there that you can go and read about and learn from. And mm. um, I, I've learned a huge amount from, from the likes of uh, Alex Osterwilder's Business Model Generation books, the Business Model Canvas, and the other kind of stuff that, that has come from uh, his, his work. Um, and another author, Tendai Vicky from Kent. Um, there's, there's a huge amount in, in, in lean startup methodology. I'm not going to rehearse that. People can go read that. Mm. I think the most important thing is that you, you have to find your tribe and you, you have to start talking to people about it. And you need to start talking to people about it who will tell you you're wrong and why. <laughs> And people who will tell you it's the greatest thing they've ever heard of. And you need to talk to them both in the right amount for you. But you have to talk to them both. Because if you talk to all the people who agree with you that junior doctors wrote as a chaos and, and, and your app is the greatest thing since sliced bread mm. for solving that, and a thousand junior doctors tell you that you can invent something that they absolutely love and is totally unworkable for an HR department. <laughs> so you've invented something that is not an innovation. Yep. Um, you have to go. And there's a great video online from some guys called Owlet. 2013 they do this startup competition and you see these university students pitch their idea for a baby monitor it's like a little sats monitor uh, mm. without a wire like a wireless sats monitor can <laughs> you imagine it's now a company that's been worth over a billion dollars crazy wow. and you watch them and the process that they go through and they have their idea without making anything they go and test their idea and the nurses say, hey, this is brilliant. Oh, yeah, I hate wires. Oh, it's going to be great. We love it. And the next thing they do, they test it again. And they go to procurement and they go, this is not a problem that you are solving for us. We can buy SATS monitors with wires. They're dirt cheap. Like, we don't need that thing. Yeah. It ain't coming in our hospital. And so the next thing they do is go and test the next bit of their plan. And they just focus on what are the biggest risks? What are the biggest assumptions we're making? What's the biggest thing that needs to be true hmm. for this to succeed? And if you can find the right people to challenge your thinking, 
then you will learn faster and grow further than than your peers and you stand a chance um if you go secret squirrel mm. and build this giant baby you generally end up <laughs> over engineering it and then when you take it out everyone goes gosh i can see how much work you put into that it's beautiful isn't it i don't want one myself i don't need one yeah. in it but, <laughs> yeah gosh it's great and then you run around with this creation no, looking for somebody I, else who needs it. I think that's, that's incredible advice. And the way you started it was find people that fight you against it. And I think as a human nature, we're so used to, and we want to hear it's an amazing idea. You're going to do super well. You're going to become a millionaire overnight. And, you know, all of those wonderful things. And you end up building this baby that no one <laughs> eventually wants and and the bit of kind of speaking to those barriers the big risks for it to kind of being adopted is also something quite interesting um no i i definitely like that one second Abdul. how many of these babies do you have to make <laughs> because what i be careful with what i've said like you mm. do have to make those ugly babies you mm, have to mm. make them and you have to make them quickly and you have to make loads of them mm, mm, mm. and you pivot and you learn and you, you come across people who go, what you need to be true is not true. Yeah. Okay? Mm. Like, I think, yeah, you, you've invented this too soon. The world is not ready. It's a great yeah. idea, but you've got to kill yeah. it and move on to the next idea. Definitely. The problem comes when you've spent 10 years on something. And that's the first time someone's telling you, this is, this is, we don't need it. Man, like uh, that, yeah. And med school's really bad for that. Yeah, I was med going to say, medicine, it, it, I don't know if it trains your subconscious, but you see in this mode, it's like, you just keep your head down, do it. You don't kind of come out and see if, if, if there's a need for what you're doing, if there's a need for thing. Um, yeah. Everyone thinks that people come out of med school and they they have signed off something like the Hippocratic Oath. They've like said this or chanted it or you know gone to some ceremony where it's like tattooed on you. If first do no harm was what we did, we wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't <laughs> scar someone by doing an operation to take out their appendix. Absolutely. So a mission, not doing something, can be as significant as what we do do. So it can't be all about not doing harm. And when you're far enough away from those kind of conversations, mm. everyone's quite pragmatic and goes, well, it's all about value, isn't it? It's all about, like, what does the patient want? What do they value? If their quality of life is being able to sit up, great, let's give them that and move on. If mm. their quality of life is being able to run and play football for a Premier League, then that's what we're going to measure it on. Mm. So we'll scar them and we'll reconstruct their knee so that they can do what they value in life. No. Then we go to, <laughs> to, mm. to like, oh, first do no harm. Oh, well, you know, what have you just 
written in your management plan. Well, that's not perfect, <laughs> is it? When yeah. you're not getting full marks on your Oski, gosh, yeah. you're not getting distinction. Oh, you're not the best in the class at medicine, are you? Hmm. Um, no, I think definitely interesting. It's a, definitely a different way of seeing things. And if anything, it's probably the right way to see things, to really do something worthwhile and have a baby that everyone does want and does want to hold and cuddle um, and give kisses to. Kind of flipping it back, tell us a bit more about the world of consulting, VC, what that entailed, how you stumbled upon it, um, and kind of the, the skills you learned that are different to medicine, but complement you as an individual. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, that was really clear to me before going to an MBA was um, it really matters how the, the university engages with the entrepreneurial community and businesses around it. Because that's where you will get alumni coming back to talk to you. It's where you will get opportunities for placements. It's where they will engage with the career service. And mm. if if you're looking to get kinesthetic experience, like getting into projects and stuff, those relationships from the business school matter. And okay. uh, Catapult Ventures was based in like the East Midlands. Um, Nick, who was who was running the team was looking to set up a fund in the Northwest to repopulate um, Audley Park, which was a huge campus, which had a pharma company on it, loads of research facilities, and they were relocating. And this fund was coming up. And so lots of different venture capital funds were, were bidding to manage that and to repopulate the site and keep all the smart people in, 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 Cheshire and and, um, and Lancashire in the area. Um, Catapult Ventures won that bid, and then I was just exposed to to all kinds of entrepreneurs um, mm. from observing a board meeting with a team working to help with with sight aids and and hearing aids. Um, in Northampton, they were amazing, just so driven, like unsexy tech, really mm. unsexy. All they knew about government contracts and procurement and grants and and how, you know, kids at school and kids at university get their grant funding. And they had to really understand the mechanics of what site aid users need to go through to get funding so that they could help them get the funding to access the equipment they needed to go to university, you know, okay. if they couldn't see in here. So I, I had no idea that businesses needed to, you know, I thought they could just sell your stuff to <laughs> the customer to work out how they're going to buy it. Like you yeah. fill out the form. Um, through to some incredible university profs who, you know, in, we're looking at ways to stop bleeding um, that might be used in operating theatres and others that were looking at how you might reclaim red cells out of swabs in an operating theatre so that you reduce the number of blood transfusions and that kind of thing. Mm. They're all risky. So you're looking at all these people with these great inventions going, wow, well, why am I in the room? 
Like you're the smart guy. You invented the thing. Why am hmm. I here? But when you listen to them talk about how they imagine a doctor might use it, why hmm. they imagine a doctor might take it off the shelf or pull it out of the cupboard, you realize that the privilege you've had of being in med school and being on the wards means you actually understand what makes you log into a piece of software. Yeah. Yeah. Pick up the phone to make that referral. Do the actions that result in an action that another company then makes, you know, profit of. They serve that action. Hmm. And when you see that and you bring that to the business world, yeah. they make better products. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, and sometimes no. you'll be the patient advocate in the conversation. Sometimes you'll be the one in the room going, guys, you've told me this thing is for people with dementia to help them hmm. remember the photos from 50 years ago and listen to music <laughs> from 50 years ago. How many people with dementia have used it? Yeah. Zero. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. Well, let's do that. And then let's have a conversation and see if it's addressing an unmet need. Um, because that's what, doctors are interested in um, or, or healthcare payers? Does no. it meet a need that our patients care about? No, definitely. And, and I love, you just kind of added another value add for doctors and the value of them being in a different room outside of the wards, outside of kind of hospital. Yeah, but there, there's, there's a huge, you, you have, there's a, there's a balance. And, Mm. So one of the guys I met at Catapult Ventures, uh, BJ is now with, with Optum Ventures. So he left medicine really early in his career and went straight into BC. And um, he clearly has the thinking that goes with having been in, in med school. But when I have a conversation with someone that's left med school at F1 to go work at McKinsey or whatever, and I have a conversation with a senior registrar who's on advisory boards advising entrepreneurs or or the health foundry and just they bring a very different set of yeah things to the conversation the more time you spend in the hospital figuring out how hospitals work the more potential you have to find that product market fit yeah um the more time you you have understanding what genuinely changes processes in a hospital through your quality improvement work mm. what does it really take to change patient behavior at scale by auditing a weight loss clinic because if you can mm. do that there wow like you're gonna have so much impact in yeah a small team that's highly focused on a small task like you guys yeah. have this business. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like your podcast. Yeah. You've made a very, very um, significant point, actually. Um, a previous guest made a similar point that sometimes staying within the system to build experience allows you to get closer to a problem, which allows you to make a more significant impact. Sometimes Getting, becoming a registrar or getting into the theatres as a consultant actually allows you to be 
allows you to make a more significant contribution to innovation, um, as you said. So for our listeners now who are relatively very junior, medical students even sometimes, thinking about, should I leave before F1? I'm interested in um, health consultancy or something like that. What would you say? Say they, say they do have that love for medicine still, but they're still thinking it might not be in the clinical world. It might be in a consulting firm or it might be in the startup space. Would you say go and taste what it's like to physically be in the job? What, what would your advice be in this, in this sort of uh, situation? It's a great question. And it's really interesting because your listeners are, are kind of made that first decision and probably most of them are at med school or, or beyond. Um, I, for a long time, when people were saying, hey, I want to do medicine, can I do work experience or, or whatever in the NHS? And we would talk about it. I would really ask them why and I would challenge them to understand why. And, and five whys mm. is a great way to have a conversation mm. and to help them think through what it is that drives them and makes them get out of bed in the morning and mm. finish the day with a smile. And some people go through that conversation and at the end of it, medicine might not be what they thought it was. It might be dentistry. It might be veterinary. Yeah. It might be banking. It might be, mm. it could be anything. Um, because you have to remember that, you know, most people who go to med school have the potential to do a huge range of things, you know, and, and including yeah. not going to university at all and just starting out as an entrepreneur and having a go. Mm. Like some of the guys from my sixth form who chose not to go to university had property and cars and bank balances <laughs> by the time that I was 23 and graduating from med school, that if those were the things that drove me, you know, I was definitely in the wrong place. <laughs> okay. I should definitely have followed their entrepreneurial journey, got a trade, yeah. bought my first house at 21, done it up and, and be a serial yeah. entrepreneur by the time I was 25. Um, <laughs> now, if you're later, you know, and you've started medicine and you're loving it, but you're looking at the pay and the work-life balance and that kind of stuff, I would say go with what brings you joy. Mm. And if you're mm. worried about the work-life balance, there's never been a better time to set your boundaries and work less than full time and mm. pick up other interests and take UPs and do an F3, go off and uh, have a year uh, abroad or do something different or do a clinical fellowship in mm. Department of Health or, or, or Bupa or somewhere. Um, there's never been more opportunities than there are right right now. And the work of Tony Young is just incredible. Like, you know, the guy's a, the guy's a, an entrepreneurial rock star. Yeah. It doesn't matter yeah. whether you're in healthcare or not. Um, you know, he's, he's created the world's biggest cohort of, of health entrepreneurs. And yeah. um, 
you know, it, it, he hasn't had the support that the likes of Stanford and, and other, you know, yeah. world famous institutions that back themselves to bring these, these health entrepreneurs forward have had um, in the early days. So you can go and do this stuff. It's all there now. Um, if, however, you fundamentally are struggling with medicine, the first thing you've got to do is, is work out where your support's going to come from. Because you're not going to wake up one morning and go, do you know what, I've made my decision and it's all okay now. <laughs> and it's really difficult when you're surrounded by medics who are like getting ready for their exams and getting ready for job applications and planning their cool elective. Yeah. Sometimes for you to go, I feel like I'm in the wrong stream here. Like you're mm -hmm. going that way and I want to yeah. go that way. And I'm just not going to come out today. I'm just not going to socialize with you guys. I'm not going to do that thing. Um, and you, you end up on your own and you end up with really difficult mental health challenges. So work out who you're going to have these conversations with. And sometimes it's your mates, sometimes it's your family, sometimes it's your friends, sometimes it's the careers team, sometimes it's just a decent lecturer or a random SHO that you come across that you have a good rapport with. But you need to have that yeah, conversation yeah. somewhere. Um, and, and work out what your values are. Think about when you've been happy, what drove that, that, that happiness. And, you know, I, I went through a career coaching conversation um, not very long ago. And I was, I'm lucky I've, I've, I've actually had, you know, different projects and different roles over the last five years in, in, in Pfizer where I've been able to change what I'm doing to better match the stuff that when I was a kid I knew made me happy. Mm. But the world got busy and I drifted away from it and this thing would be a good thing to do. And three decisions later, you've moved away from your, your true values. Yeah. So you get struggling if medicine really works for you, find someone to talk to about it. Think about when you've been happy and what drove that. And then look to see if it's there in medicine. And if it's not there in medicine, it's you're going to be your own entrepreneur and you mm. are your number one stakeholder, but you've got to go out there and test your assumptions that plan B, C, D, E, F will bring you joy. And the best way to do any of this stuff is with the minimum investment possible. And so for career stuff, that comes with a conversation. Go start, find your tribe. Mm. Go and talk to a load of bankers. And if you want to throw them off a bridge at the end of the conversation, <laughs> you probably don't want to go into banking. If you love it, if you get your energy from those guys looking at data and spreadsheets and algorithms and trying to think what the public might do next, it's going to change a market and how you can be ahead of it. And if that really, then great. You've just found your tribe. If that comes from applying to voluntary services overseas and going, do you know what? I'm going to take a year out in year four 
I'm going to go to Kenya. I'm going to build a hospital. I'm going to be the best that the healthcare has to offer out there, even though I've only got what I've trained with so far. Mm. And that works for you. Great. Come back and do a public health masters and go and change the world from one of the great places that we have in the UK. Um, no, I think that last bit was incredible. And I think a lot of people will find so much value insight from that, especially with someone who's been on that journey. I think that that is such a natural end to, to this, to this episode. Um, cause I don't think there's anything else we can add that can top that, but, um, it's got me thinking, um, but I want to say a massive thank you to Hamish for kind of sharing your story. I thought this episode would be a bit more like, you know, less emotional and less deep and more like, you know, did this, did this, this was the logic. And, you know, I like the way Very we did this, thought, actually, if I'm being actually. honest. I am. I'm delighted you guys invited me on and I'm happy to talk tech all day, you know, there's, mm. but there's loads of great guys out there like Ryan Kirsten at the Royal College of Surgeons, Naveen Kabali, you've spoken to him. I worked yeah. with him before. Like I've met some mm. great guys, Sam Shah. There's yeah. plenty of real people who bring a huge amount of value talking about the tech, um, Chris, um, at, at, at e-consult, um, and and you know the guys at humor and stuff there's there's plenty of people who can talk tech um but yeah i think for me it's not been a grand plan it's just no. been a series of choices driven by the values that i have and the impact really? i want to bring no I've... incredible i like the way this went thank you so much hamish once again cool. thank you to our listeners um tuning in we hope to catch you all next week. Thank you.